This is an ABC podcast. I wish I knew how it would feel to be free. Amazon Acres is a thousand acres of red fertile earth, the undulating plateau of Mount Firestone. It has permanent water rising in natural springs, and two of the creeks have beautiful waterfalls. There are two shacks, fairly strong and okay temporarily. That's how the dream began. A mountaintop covered in rainforest, isolated, safe, 12 kilometres up a rough dirt road in northern New South Wales. And on the starry, warm nights, we'd gravitate out to the, around the fireplace. And there's something really miraculously beautiful singing under a starry sky with all these young voices. Paradise, with one big difference. It was for women only. We really wanted that experience of women's space and a female environment in nature. The fun and the opportunity and adventure. It was a, it was a girl's own adventure. Sisterhood is powerful. We lived it. I'm Rebecca Huntley, and this is the History Listen. Amazon Acres was set up in the 1970s as a bold experiment to found a new self-sufficient community, a refuge for women, a feminist utopia. In the last program, we heard about how, once the word got out, women arrived from all over and set about building a community their way and the hard way. We were using, um, even to get out fence posts, we were using sledgehammers and wedges. Uh, it was going back to the Iron Age for me, really, because I'd been used to driving tractors and using machinery. All I wanted was a tractor. <laughs> but smashing the patriarchy was never going to be easy. There was a lot to sort out. But there were lots of arguments about no meat, no men and no machines. We were young and so feelings ran high. Fenella Souter went to Amazon Acres 45 years after it began. She saw the hex, the hexagonal structure the women built by hand, and she heard the stories of the friendships, the hardships, and the unifying power of song. But then... There were women with sticks and there were women with stones. Not rocks, not boulders, but throwing stones. Today, Sisterhood Under Siege. It all began with such hope. A simple dream of living away from the mainstream without men. But even a remote country utopia has neighbours. The Mountain Collective might have been all wild bush and wild young women living a hard scrabble existence, but the district itself had long been pasture land and timber country. CWA halls and wooden churches. A close-knit, conservative community with deep roots in the area. They didn't always take kindly to a bunch of eccentric strangers in gumboots, singlets and no bras. Stan and Ethel Kennedy were very good to us and non-judgmental. Arthur Coombs, who was a single man, a logger at the foot of the mountain, was also very good to us and gave us a lot of assistance. But the general families in the valley were hostile towards us. They had reason to be angry because there was a few women who were a bit renegade who went around and cut fences. So. There was a bit of a war going on, but some of them really didn't want us there. They really didn't. They were quite prepared to turn up at Mum and Dad's place and ask for help. But if I went to their place, I'd be told, get off the property. I'd be shown a gun. And that's the way they were. Did they have guns? Yes, they did. 
the whole the community said, oh, the lesbians come in the community, like, God, they'll steal, they'll kill your cattle and that, but they were absolutely great, like, you know. I mean, um, when they first came here, they did cause us a lot of trouble, which was a bit hard to take. I mean, when you'd been here all your lives, like. So it was a culture clash. For a while, the women kept a low profile, but that changed with some of the newcomers, wilder women who didn't always respect country customs. Hello, Don. I went to see Donald Kennedy, son of the late Stan and Ethel Kennedy, a local couple who had loved the women. Donald, not so much. He's still annoyed more than 40 years later by what he saw as the women sponging off his parents. Well, I didn't respect anybody's rules as far as I could see. That men were just something to stomp on the first opportunity and use when you wanted them. It gets to a stage where you can only give so much help. Then they just turn up, oh, we've got to get up the mountain. Can you run us up the mountain? Can you lend us a horse? Can you lend us some saddles? Can you look after our kids while we go to Sydney to go to a rock festival? It became habitual with them. And they were not like they were living on the property, earning living off the property in any way. They were just being there. I also had a cup of tea with June Coombs, a local woman now in her 90s. She told me more about the talk in the town back then. There was a big story about one going up there, you know, on a hot day with a baby. But, I mean, would you set out to walk up that high mountain with no water and a baby to carry? And, you know, I mean, that was a ridiculous thing to do, wasn't it? And how did people feel about, I mean, they were, you know, all, all women, and a lot of them were lesbian women. Did that cause a stir in the town? Well, I don't think so, actually. It, I mean, if they were that, that was it, they go, you know, but... Uh... Local woman Michelle Tout was just a child in the 70s. She and her mother, who lived on adjoining land, admired these headstrong women. But she also remembers how their unconventional ways caused offence. Yeah, sometimes um, they'd catch the school bus into town, but the bus wouldn't pick them up because they were too um, stinking to get on the bus. And when they got to town, some of the shops wouldn't have them into, the, into their stores because they reckoned they were too smelly and, and weren't dressed... <laughs> Well, suitable enough to be in their, in their shops, but, oh, well, someone didn't have much on. <laughs> Men's baggy singlet that was three or four sizes too big and that's all they'd have, nothing else under it. Some of the women saw themselves as custodians of the land. Michelle Tout remembers a visit one day from the spooked driver of their log lorry. The log lorry had come back in with a load of logs and he'd come out and seen us the one afternoon and said to Mum, you've got to go out and sort them women out. They attacked me today, they stoned the log lorry and called me for everything and we laughed at it like, you know, the girls wouldn't do that. <laughs> and he said they did, they stoned the log lorry. So no worries, went out the next day and seen them. And they said, oh, oh, there's a wattle tree there, he run over, another wattle tree here, he run over, and oh, poor thing, so we had to transplant it and it'll die now. So, oh, yeah, there's plenty more wattle trees anyway. Stripped bare naked, they were, no clothes on them. All they had was knives hanging around their, <laughs> their waist. And were the knives for what purpose? <laughs> well, I never asked ever what the knives were for, but they looked dangerous anyway. Mm. 
So why was your mother so sympathetic to them when some other people were more hostile? Oh, well, they were always good to us. If, if there was a, a cow or a calf or something sick, they'd always ring up and tell you, like, you know, there was something wrong with it. And if you're out there riding on the horse, they'd always offer you a cold drink every time. So yeah, they were good to us. So the locals were already divided. And then came the big gash. Ironically, Amazon Acre's greatest nemesis turned out to be a woman, a neighbour who drew the community into a crisis that almost destroyed it. The neighbour, who declined to be interviewed for this program, took exception to the women using an access road that ran across part of her property. Trouble was, that was the only way to get to the top of the mountain, a steep 12 kilometres. Karen Higgs, one of the founders, takes up the story. All of a sudden, she started blocking the road. And then she started cutting down trees that might have been, say, three or four metre diameter, like insanely huge. One of them was a mahogany. Finally, it became clear to us. We found out from a local policeman, in fact, God bless him, that uh, they were coming to actually bulldoze the road to bits. It led to what became known as Bulldozer Day, or the Day of the Big Gash, an episode that still looms large in the history of Amazon Acres. I mean, the Day of the Big Gash, she and her posse <laughs> came galloping up the hill and uh, the bulldozer came up behind them or with them or whatever and we stood there and allowed ourselves to be arrested. Three of us got arrested and got taken away for trespass. That didn't help much, of course, because then he proceeded on to make the big gash. Describe that, because you see that you're all standing there with what? what <laughs> oh, well, sticks. I didn't have sticks. Look, I didn't do sticks and stones, but I'm a bit of a wimp. Um, but there were women with sticks and there were women with stones. It was right there just before you get to the first bit of the saddle where there's a really high hill above. And so there were women up on that hill, not, not, not rocks, not boulders, but throwing stones. And um, the bulldozer driver, he um, really freaked out and he turned tail and went down an almost vertical slope to get away from us. <laughs> so anyway, but this was only after he had already made what we called the big gash. Yeah, actually got a dozer and he just dozed the, the side out of the mountain like where the road was and fell trees across it. It was disgraceful to think anyone would ever do something like it to anyone. If an emergency or anything, they had no access to get backwards and forwards and back then, like, that was the only means of way of, of them getting out. So did you support the landowner who blockaded the road? Did you think she had a... A reasonable case? Oh, yes, I think so. Yeah, yes, well, I said if um, what so, they wanted to do was travel on our place but not have us travel on theirs, you see. Did anybody want to travel on that road up to the mountain? Oh, not very often. They wouldn't have, no. The hostilities ramped up. So there was a dead wallaby left in our mailbox dressed in a frock. Um... No one was killed. However, there was another occasion which they thought might have been down to 
the brother of this woman who, who closed the road, was where the women used to ride, this is down in the valley, the ones who used to ride in the valley, they happened to find, before they rode through, a wire at kind of horseback height. You know, um, they, didn't, they didn't ride into it, but they used to ride like maniacs, those women, the ones who rode the horses, so if uh, it could have been a, a really horrendous case. The bitter fight over the road closure also split the rural community itself, many of them family. Donald's parents, Stan and Ethel Kennedy, took the Amazon Acres side, and according to Donald, Stan paid a price for that. I think Dad was even canned from the church. He used to be a um, deacon in the church. Because he was a deacon, he had to comply with certain ideals, you know what I mean? <clears throat> the rest of the community were complaining to the church, who stands doing this and he's supporting lesbians, he's doing that sort of thing. You can't have that going on. You can't have a member of our church to actively supporting people who are sinners to such an extent. The dispute dragged on for two long years. The hardship of living on a mountain without a road saw some women leave, defeated and exhausted. Others grew more determined. There was another logging road, a parallel road up above. We found it, we opened it, and for a while... She blocked that road too, of course. She bulldozed that road, so it was deceased. We, and then we rebuilt it with sandbags. But anyway, it was 800 metres of practically vertical climb, and that was really the most... That was very exhausting, getting getting your stuff up there before. Oh, and there were horses too. So the, the horsewomen, they were also able to put packs on lots, some of their horses, quieter ones, to help us get things like the tins of honey, which was vital for some. <laughs> tins of honey and sacks of spuds and things like that, which you couldn't have brought on your back. You know, we were carrying huge loads. I do remember vividly one night at midnight, we'd done the shopping, we had all the kids up and we had to get through the road box and I had a, I had a whole tray of pineapples and it was, there was no moon and I was sort of tiptoeing barefoot across this gash with this, with this uh, box of pineapples on my head and I was thinking, the average woman has no idea what we do to get the shopping home. <laughs> but we did, we got it home. Finally, after a dramatic few days in front of the land board, the women won the right to use the road. The courts ruled it the only reasonable access to their property. That was the end of that threat from the outside. Now the women just had to deal with all the internal tensions that came with trying to set up a feminist utopia. Problem was, not everyone was dreaming the same dream. Were there some women who said, oh, hang on, we're supposed to be starting a farm here and building houses, and then others doing the, the sarongs and guitars? Yes, definitely. I, there was actually a line down the middle. There was a small group, definitely, who rather would build and build houses, and there was definitely this other group who wore sarongs and went barefoot a lot. There was a lot of romance involved. We were all bonkers, you know, in our own kind of ways. Like, there was a whole lot of hippie ideas about, oh, we'll 
allegorically protect the trees with a golden circle or things that I might have thought or said at the time. I just think, you know, I'm, I was off in la-la land. But there were women who really, um, you know, there was one woman who had, I think, schizophrenia and for her the mountain was a really safe place and it was really quite exciting. But she ended up going back to her family and I think they locked her up. But she was, she was good when she was on the mountain. Suzanne Hollis, who came to Amazon Acres in her 20s and now lives in a nearby town. The thing was, as a point of principle, Amazon Acres was open to all women, whoever they were, whatever their history. Inevitably, many brought their emotional problems with them. So we had women who'd been raped, women with mental illness, women who was, had been state wards, had never had a family, never had a home, women who'd had to kind of steal to survive. And on the other hand, we had the most brilliant, sane, um, thoughtful, caring women as well. But I think the percentage of women who were really troubled was a lot more than was sustainable. As word spread and more women turned up, drugs and alcohol became a problem, Amber Jackson remembers. She was one of several girl children who grew up in this community. Boy children, as we heard in the first program, weren't welcome on the whole. I think the freedom and the experiences, I'm glad I had them. But some of the issues I noticed as a kid were drinking and alcohol and drugs. There was quite a lot. Often you'd be like, oh, there's so-and-so. You knew they would probably have one drink too many and then there'd be some kind of altercation and, yeah. you know, it wasn't always like that. Can you talk about the night that there was a fire? In the valley there was a big kind of Queenslander-style wooden house. The women were having a big party down by the creek and my friend Gabrielle and I, we decided that we would leave the party and go up to the house to bed. Um, I think I was nine and she was five and we must have fallen asleep in one of the rooms and left candle burning. And when I woke up, the whole wall with the shelves was completely on fire. And it was such a, like, shocking sight. I just woke up Gabby and ran outside and I just remember screaming at the top of my lungs, the house is on fire. And then all... The women came running up and the whole house was completely on fire and completely burnt down. And it was a sight that I do remember was like half of them just going, woohoo, we're free, we're free, and leaping around going, the house is gone, we're free. And I was just like, oh, what? <laughs> Crazy women. But I was called a, a shero, not a hero, for saving Gab's life, yeah. We all just thought that there'd be goodwill amongst women, there'd be sisterhood, sisterhood is powerful, we'd be right. Well, not exactly. What did freedom mean? In straight society, the women had had a gutful of being told what to do. On the mountain, 
everyone was to have a say. No rules, no leaders, all decisions by consensus. That was never going to be easy. It was an incredible battle to get sensible decisions made for a very long time, and women who thought they could do it their way just did it their way. Later on, you know, there would be waves then of women who would come in and say that you can't eat meat, that's male culture. I can remember one night when, I don't know, someone had brought lamb chops back from town and a few of us really love a lamb chop. And, um, but there was someone in the hut who thought this was an, an insult to women. And in the end, the lamb chops were thrown all... Oh, it was just a terrible scene. So, meat. Stroppy dykes. They were, they were everywhere. As, as well as sort of, you, you know, the gentle stardust and golden. Particularly as lesbians and being impacted by discrimination, you can go a bit mad, you know, and for a lot of women there have been trauma experiences in their lives. So I think sometimes we swept difficult issues under the carpet and we didn't deal with challenging behaviours. We allowed women to pretty much do what was wanted and, and yes, there was a sense, there was always a sense of, of overall caring. Sand Hall, a long-time supporter and resident who's edited a book about Amazon Acres. Lorene Kelly remembers what's been called the tyranny of structurelessness. It was chaos in action um, and I was part of it. I don't know how you can, it's like herding cats with a great big bunch of women who were there for all their different reasons. And some were, the levels of political awareness were also high to low. You know, some, some were headness, some were, you know, it was just sort of the way it was. Yeah. Was it very, too much emotion? Like we always say that men are too thinking. Was it like too much emotion going on? Oh, much too much emotion. I mean, it was the tears would be a way of stopping the meeting. There was a lot of drama. See, I was, um, I was a very, very silly utopian who thought that rules were, were a bad idea. So I should have started off with a complete rule book. I should have come to... <laughs> I really should. I believe I should. Um, so, but um, I was... Uh, what, would the, what would those rules have been? Oh, well, um, I would have had uh, simple majority rule. I would have no bar of consensus. I think the majority should really be allowed to decide. Where you have something that is... A permanent disagreement, you know, or a very, very intransigent disagreement. I don't know. I would have had no dogs. I would have had dogs would not be allowed. I don't know what else I would have done. So you've only got two rules then? It's a thin rule book. Well, all right, I'd also... Oh, I don't know. But for all of that, were there benefits to a women-only community? I think so. I think that women cared more for each other. Generally speaking, I think that also the roles that are really defined in heterosexual communes are women bake the bread and men make the buildings, whereas we made the buildings, we made the bread. And also sexual harassment's less and violence, I do believe, even though there are those elements within our community too, it's much less than occurs in a mixed community. We were running a micro society, you could say, but the experience doesn't lead me to think that women necessarily <laughs> better or dif maybe differently. Barbara Block, a regular visitor in the 70s and 80s. But when things went wrong between individuals, they went very wrong and very nasty and very personal. I mean, I don't think being a lesbian makes you a more superior human being. 
<laughs> Don't tell anyone I said that. <laughs> For all its ructions, or maybe even because of them, Sand Hall sees the Amazon Acres enterprise as a triumph, a wild, rocky ride of liberation. I see it as, as facing fears and fantasies. You know, greatest fears, greatest fantasies. You know, the whole girl's own adventure. And then the practicality of dealing with the weather and um, if you did hurt yourself. Because you go through a bit of a sense of an initiation at times, either from the environment or by living with the other women. There's a whole group that made it their home, but you could only last for so long. Mei Ling, a former Amazon Acres resident, now in her 60s. I myself, I think, only lasted about five years. And at the end of that five years, I had nothing. There's so much riding horses and walking around naked and barefoot that you can take that eventually, you know, it's time to go back into the world and get a new car and some shoes. Yet their time on Amazon Acres changed them all. It was a profound experience. I'd arrived on the mountain with two suitcases and one was full of high heel shoes and dresses and the other one was full of LP records. And that's fact. I'd never lived in the bush. I had no skills. But by the time I left, we all learnt carpentry, gardening, bush skills, you know. I think it's only in hindsight now that I'm an older woman that I recognise the incredible gifts that were given to me and how strong it made me. I feel like it made me who I am. I think it was a really interesting, original, far-out way to grow up. And also the experience of kind of living off the grid and that kind of thing, I think you can't really match that. What happened to Amazon Acres? In spite of many attempts to make a living off the land, from potatoes to orchids, the place never became self-sufficient. Times changed, women drifted away. Some moved into nearby towns, took up jobs, became locals, and feelings softened. In a touching twist, one of the Amazons, Sorrel, ended up caring for June Coombs and her husband Bill, those formerly hostile neighbours. Sorrel was the one, well, she was doing bush nursing. She used to come out and attend to his leg like and everything. In a way, the dream lives on. Nobody lives there full-time anymore, but women continue to visit, and the collective still owns and protects the land to hand on to the next generation of women. A mountain and a valley, no less, 4,000 acres. There are tensions over its future management, but nothing new in that. The land, women's land, is still a special place that nourishes the spirit. Sand Hall. I love women's space. I love the creativity of it. It's a different energy to be in an environment that is just women. And also, in terms of the lands, I love the solitude of being there. I love to go there for days at a time and not see anyone else sometimes. I love feeling part of nature. As for Karen Higgs, she's now a world-respected historian, specialising in politics and environmental studies but she still lives nearby. As we stood on the top of the mountain, now encircled by a tangle of rainforest, she told me what she still loves about this place, that she ran around like a mad thing on the day she found it 45 years ago. So I love the fact that I have learned to appreciate ecology in a very hands-on way, not just in an abstract way. I love the views even though they're gone. <laughs> there are glimpses, I'll show you the glimpses. 
I love my little house, which I'll show you, my hexagon. Yeah, because I'm looking now and there's the sunlight just coming through these clouds here and lighting up parts of the hill. Yeah. It's almost as if there's like celestial rays coming up. <laughs> what an extraordinary story. I just love listening to those amazing women reflect on the ups and downs of Amazon Acres. And it's nice to know some part of it still remains in the Australian bush. Sisterhood Under Siege was produced by Fenella Suter and Cathy Gollan. The sound engineer was John Jacobs and the supervising producer was Claudia Taranto. I'm Rebecca Huntley. Join me next week for more great stories here on the History Listen. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.